Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. I'm sorry. Before we get to Justin Verlander and the Mets pivoting and repurposing, whatever you want to call it, the Tuesday night loss to the Kansas City Royals was just, I mean, so, so freaking typical. And I know I couldn't be the only one after a very eventful day in Met history to sit down on my overweight tuchus, watch a Met game, and hope to watch a victory. Just hope to watch the Mets win. And, you know, Pete Alonzo hits a bomb of a home run, and they have a one nothing lead. You just know one nothing's not going to be enough. And Jose Quintana, because the Royals are playing little ball, gives up a cheap run in the fifth inning. And then they fall behind in the seventh inning when Buck Showalter took Quintana out. In my opinion, one batter too early. Let him finish the seventh inning. But, of course, we need to see Trevor Gott. We got to see Trevor Gott, who promptly gives up an RBI single. And this was that back-and-forth, weird kind of baseball game that I thought the Mets were actually going to win when Francisco Alvarez hit the two-run home run. And I should have known better because this day was never going to end in a positive way in the short term. And I should have known it in the eighth inning when the Kansas City Royals, one of the worst teams in the history of baseball, they're that bad. They just get overshadowed by Oakland. When Dylan Coleman is walking the building and he's trying to give the Mets the game, and while they take the lead, and that's great, it should have been more. They should have busted that game open right then and there. And you just knew one run wouldn't be enough. And when Adam Adovino is walking the leadoff guy in the eighth inning, and again, the Royals are doing those little things, stealing their 800th base of the game, and they come back and tie it, you could just feel that this was going to have some kind of creative kicking the balls kind of ending. Alvarez hits the two-run bomb. We're all giddy. He's the hope for the future. And Brooks Raley, who I'm glad they didn't trade, but maybe on this night they should have traded him, promptly lets the Royals come back and tie the game. I'm not even kidding, within 30 seconds. It took 30 seconds for Bobby Witt Jr. to hit the RBI double and for MJ Melendez to hit a bloop RBI single. But then, of course, we need to just be punched and kicked. Brett Beatty, and God bless him, he's got to play every day and we know it, makes a terrible throw on a routine ground ball to third base that should have ended the game. Or not ended the game, taken it to the 11th. So at least we extend this thing. Grant Hartwig forgets to throw a strike, but don't worry. We got Jordan Walker coming in 
And then we have, for the first time in the history of baseball, a walk-off pitch-com balk. I've seen walk-off balks before. You could look this one up. I think Greg McMichael of the New York Mets had a walk-off balk in like 1997. I, I don't know why I have this memory. And I'll tell you what the memory is. I was in the parking lot at the Meadowlands for SummerSlam 1997, the one where uh, Shawn Michaels hit The Undertaker accidentally with a chair and Bret Hart won the title for some reason. And I could be dead wrong about this. (laughs) On that day, while listening to the Mets on a radio, Greg McMichael issued a game-ending balk. It may have been a wild pitch. We'll have to look that up at a later date. But you can't make this up. They lose the game on a balk. And here's what's so frustrating. Was it a balk? Yes. Should the umpires have at least granted the pitch comm timeout prior to calling the balk? Yes. It's obvious the guy just came into the game. Josh Walker is having an issue with pitch comm. So he makes the pitch comm signal. Nobody does anything about it, whether it's home plate umpire, Ryan Blakeney, or John Tupain, the third base umpire. Then he does balk, no doubt. Alvarez comes to the mound. We just figure it's a regular mound visit. And then in delay, they call the balk. And I know at the end of the day, does it matter? 50 and 56, 51 and 55. After the events of Tuesday, none of this matters. But you know what? Damn it. It mattered to me. It mattered to you, Pete. I could tell. I could feel it. I could feel it just looking at you in our little Zoom during the Rico. You're pissed off that they lost this game this way. Yeah, no, uh, that's as frustrating of a loss all season. It sums up the whole season. But, like, after a day like today, it would have been nice if you saw a big moment by a like, youthful guy like Alvarez and they get a win. It's like, you know what? This is not the end of the Mets season. Maybe there's still something left in the tank. It's just like, oh, wait, no, it really is. If they <laughs> sold and it's done. it. <laughs> You're right, though, because if they win and we were going to do this pot anyway to wrap up the day's events – I guarantee we would have had two minutes of, well, they're 51 and 55. Okay, let's do some math here. I can kind of see it. Kodai Senga dominates the rest of the year. Cookie Carrasco picks it up. And instead, we're just put out of our misery. I don't know if I'll call this the worst loss of the year because the season probably ended weeks ago, and it certainly ended in the last few days. But just a final nail in the coffin of one of the worst seasons in the history of the franchise. And we will have a pot at some point debating that, debating the merits of 2023 as the worst season in the history of the Mets. But on this day, it was about the new reality we all live in. So let's start there. First of all, if you want an instant reaction to the Verlander trade, I was on the air with Tiki. Go to our podcast. Go to the Evan and Tiki podcast. I certainly reacted to it live. And it happened early in the show. And there was that moment of what they get, what they get, what they get. I obviously later find out Drew Gilbert and Ryan Clifford is what they got. I think on Monday, it became obvious that this was going to happen. As much as it scared me and as I was against it, I think on Monday, you heard so much smoke of the Mets shopping Verlander and talking to the Dodgers and the Orioles and the Astros that I think if you're going down that road of talking as much as they had talked over the last two days, they were going to do it. That obviously they were going to try to milk out as much as they can get, and they needed Verlander's approval on where he was going to go. But they clearly made the decision with the Max trade that it wasn't just going to be one of them. It was going to be both of them. So 
we were all split as Met fans. I know I was in the camp of I'd rather not trade either guy. Salicata was in the camp of just trade Max Scherzer. And I'm sure there were some who said, blow the whole thing up and trade both of them. Obviously, as somebody that was in the camp of, let me see if they can make this thing work, trade the free agents to be, not replenish your system, but yet young players for those guys while simultaneously trying to keep yourself sort of relevant this year, but also reload for next year, they clearly decided that was not the way to go. The David Robertson trade was the first blow. The Max Scherzer was the second blow. And then obviously what they did with Verlander. Here's where I'm very, very mixed about everything. There is no doubt that what Billy Epler and Steve Cohen have done over the last five days has just changed this Met Farm system in an incredibly big way. Now, saying the farm system is now ranked very high doesn't mean that all these guys are going to pan out. As we know, you never know with prospects. They're sort of like lottery tickets. But they used, Cohen used his financial might to buy a farm system. As we sit here right now, if you go to MLB.com, the number two prospect in the Met Farm system is Luis Angel Acuna. He is here because of money. The number four prospect in their farm system is Drew Gilbert, the key man they acquired back in the Verlander trade, a top 100 prospect, an outfielder, a speedster, a feisty kind of guy. He is now their fourth best prospect in the system, and that came because of money. Ryan Clifford, the other piece they got back in this Verlander trade, is the sixth best prospect in their system. Marco Vargas, one of the kids they got back in the David Robertson trade, is now their ninth best prospect in their system. Justin Jarvis, who they got back in the Marcana trade, is now their 15th best prospect in their organization. Coleman Crow, who they got in the Eduardo Escobar trade about a month and a half ago, is their 16th best prospect. Ronald Hernandez, who they got in the David Robertson trade, is now their 21st best prospect. Jeremiah Jackson, who they got for Tommy Pham, is their 22nd best prospect. Luis Rodriguez, who they got for Dominic Leone. No, that, that was Tommy Pham, actually. I'm trying to, I'm actually trying to keep this all straight. I think Luis Rodriguez was for Tommy Pham. He's their 27th best prospect. They have with money being the impetus of this, change their farm system. And there will be a day, maybe a part of it is today, but mostly down the road, where that's damn exciting that Steve Cohen did something revolutionary. He used his money to not just buy free agents, but to spend on a part of a contract that made a player so valuable that you were able to purchase minor league prospects. And it's a weapon that he used. And that's great for the future, but it sucks for today. And I think it sucks for next year because their chances of competing, forget this year, that's out the window. Let me take that part out. Who cares about this year? It's over. They trade David Robertson. We all knew it was over, but they have made competing next year very, very difficult. And that's the negative. The other negative is Max Scherzer, who's got a big fat mouth, but I'm glad he does. I'm glad he opened up his mouth because I want truth. I want to know what this team is going to do. We all do. We don't want to be in suspense. We want to know, are they going to try to win next year? Max Scherzer's got the message from Billy Epler that they're not. Now, we're going to debate that today because I'm not sure what that means. 
This can be interpreted a lot of different ways, but clearly Scherzer got a message that told him, hey, we're not winning next year. Get me the hell out of here, which the Mets needed to get these prospects back. They needed Scherzer to say yes to Texas. Otherwise, Luis Angel Acuna, their number two prospect, is not here. They needed Verlander to say yes. Otherwise, Drew Gilbert and Ryan Clifford are not here. So were they sending a message to Scherzer and Verlander that maybe isn't the reality of what their plan is? We could all hope that. But then what are they telling Lindor? What is Steve Cohen telling the roster? So I get that what they did on Monday and what they did over the weekend, or what they did on Tuesday, I should say, really helps enhance the future. I'm not naive to that. I just went through all the prospects they added, and they did it using financial might, using aging Hall of Fame pitchers. But we all want to win, and we want to win now. And my now I don't mean 23, I mean 24. And they've made the job of winning in 24 very, very difficult. So here's where I think I'm at, having a whole day to interpret this. Long term, this was the right thing to do. It is. Long term, they made the right decision for the organization. But how much pain are we going to have to suffer short term? That's what I want to know. Because it also doesn't make a lot of sense with Lindor in the prime of his career and Nimmo in the prime of his career and Pete in the prime of his career. And I'll give you another guy nobody's mentioning. Edwin Diaz in the prime of his career. It doesn't make sense to have those four guys waiting around for 2026. So what's going to happen now is the real question. And what I would hope is that financially they will continue to use it as a weapon and buy free agents pitching because their pitching rotation, forget this year, I'm talking about next year, features only two guys that you can write down in permanent ink. Kodai Senga, who's had a fine rookie year, and Jose Quintana, who is rock solid. Despite missing the first half of the year, he usually makes his starts. He is a solid mid-to-back-of-the-rotation arm. And those are two nice pieces, and they're both on pretty affordable contracts, but that's it. And if you want to compete for a wild-card spot, because that's all I'm asking for, by the way, I want to compete to make the postseason, you have to add at minimum, minimum two starting pitchers, but probably three. Because if you add two, now you're relying on whether it's Mike Vassell, Dave Peterson, Tyler McGill, Joey Lucchese, and then other guys that are probably not going to be ready this upcoming season. I don't know if Dominic Hamill contributes. Calvin Ziegler's already hurt. He's years away. Christian Scott is a guy, he's pitching great. He's not exactly projected to be a top-of-the-rotation guy, but you then have to count on a couple of those guys stepping into pitch next year. So you've set yourself up where if you want to win next year, and I want to win next year, Pete wants to win next year, most of us do. With Steve Cohen as owner, that's our expectation. They have put themselves in a spot where they got to buy a lot of pitching. And Max Scherzer made it seem as if that's not going to happen. So I think it's normal to be very mixed about everything that's happened. And that's where I'm at. I'm mixed. I can't ignore that they added top prospects and they did it with financial might. That's great. I can't poo-poo that. I know that's awesome. But I also am looking 
down the barrel of 2024. And like most of us, I'm wondering what's next. What's your feelings, Pete? All right. So I'm, I'm split in different ways. First of all, you're right. Next year, it's a little scary to, to think about what's going to happen because I don't know if I really trust what Epler tells us. I listened to his 20-minute press conference. I even tried to ask a question. I had like five ready, and I couldn't get one in there. What was going to be your first question, Pete, if they, if they said yes to you in the press conference? They said they were going to be competitive next year. Uh, with a, it was going to have a competitive roster. And I want to know if that included making a big splash like a Scherzer or a Verlander and kind of hinting at Otani in some sort of way. That was the first thing I was going to try to do because they were asking how they were going to approach free agency. And they kept saying, we're going to have a competitive roster. And he basically said, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to use some of the money on pitching, relief. Either we know where our holes are, maybe some outfielders. Like he was going through basically, yeah, we have to pick up pieces all over the place. I mean, so, okay, but I really want to know, like, are they completely, is he completely like, it's, Otani's not even in our, we can't even think about Otani. He's nowhere close to us. Um, And then the other question was, at what point in time are we going to stop seeing the um, excess waste play and we really see the young kids get some real fair time up in the bigs? Well, first of all, I think Buck pretty much told us Vientos is going to play every day, and that's great. And obviously, Beatty's playing every day, and Alvarez is playing every day. I think the real question is Mauricio, and the fact he wasn't here, and that Michael Perez and uh, Rafael Ortega were called up is massively disappointing to all of us. Ronnie Mauricio needs to be here, period, stop. He's got to play. He's not only got to be here, he's got to play. This is the time to learn. As frustrating as this loss was to Kansas City on Tuesday, Brett Beatty made another error. Francisco Alvarez, as great as he is, cannot throw a guy out at second base. Guess what? They have to play. They got to play. So Ronnie Mauricio needs to be here. And the fact he's not, I'll give it a couple of days, but he better be here this weekend against the Orioles. He has to be. I think that the million-dollar question, and and this is going to determine our future, at least in 2024, is how do they plan to build a rotation? Because right now, I went through that farm system and all the prospects that they have. They do not have a lot of top-shelf pitching prospects. They don't. They've got some pretty intriguing arms. They've got a lot of arms that's, I guess, the upside is considered more middle to back of the rotation, which I know doesn't mean everything. Jacob deGrom was a middle back of the rotation prospect. I acknowledge that. But that's also rare. You know, it's rare to hit on a gem like that. So it's not as if the Mets are sitting there with top-level single-A pitching prospects that we just need to wait two to three years on. Right now, the waiting is on more position players. So short-term and long-term, how are you building a pitching rotation? I think most of us would say, hey, balls to the wall, same as always. Otani, I'm going to put in a different world right now because, yeah, they should go after Otani because he's the most unique player in the history of baseball. So, yeah, of course they should go after him. And would he help the rotation? Yeah. Would he help the middle of the... He helps everything. He helps marketing and he helps sales. I think that there is no doubt in my mind they're going going to go after Otani. 
I just think the Mets' chances today of getting him are slimmer than they were two days ago because they always had the money. They always have that ability to offer him the most. But what he seems to want is winning. And I don't know how the Mets sell that. They're going to be coming off of a terrible season. They're going to be coming off a year in which they got two Hall of Famers to waive no trade clauses. I just don't know how you sell it. Wait two years, you can't. So I think they'll go after him. I just don't think it's that realistic to get him. My my confidence in getting Otani, which was probably at 15 20%, which I think is a reasonable number for a free agent that's not your own, I think it's now down to 3%. They have the money, so they're in the game. It's not 0%, but I think it's very unlikely. So put Otani to the side. Balls to the wall. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, is it is 3% better or worse than their playoff chances this year? <laughs> better. <laughs> better. <laughs> I, I think the other option would be Julio Urias, Aaron Nola, who's flawed, but I'll just use him because he's one of the top guys out there. Blake Snell, you sign one or two of those guys, but the only way to do that is with a five or six year deal. Like you're not getting... I know Urias is not having a great year for the Dodgers, but you're not stealing him from L.A., I don't think at least, on a big money short contract. You're not doing that. So to get some of the top line starting pitchers, you're going to have to give them probably in excess of what Radon got from the Yankees. And so, so that's option number one. Option number one is money is no object. If they're going to need pitching not just next year, but for the next three years, Go give Julio Urias whatever he needs to bring him to New York. That's option number one. Okay. Uh, just just I'm just going to comment in general because I, I do want to hear what the next option. But is this based on that Billy Epler is solely making the moves or that David Stearns is going to come in as well and kind of change things up a bit? Yeah, I think this is David Stearns, but it's really Steve Cohen. Because Steve Cohen is running the show. It's his vision. And his vision is, hey, I want to win, but I also want to build a farm system. And his money has allowed the Mets to make these trades and Billy to make these trades that he's made over the last three days. So here's the question for Cohen, and it really is for Cohen, whether David Stearns runs the team or Billy Epler runs the team. Are you going to allow your team president slash general manager to give mega contracts to pitchers? Or is your vision, same thing, short-term, big money? Because short-term big money got them Verlander, got them Scherzer, and short-term big money is what they offered to Grom for him to come back. They, that's why they were never in play with him, because they didn't offer a five-year contract. If that strategy remains, I don't know how you could add frontline starting pitching. Because short deals for big money is not getting you Julio Urias or Aaron Nola or Lucas Giolito or Blake Snell. Maybe you catch a Clayton Kershaw who wants him. It's not getting you Eduardo Rodriguez. And by the way, I recognize that a lot of the names I mentioned are not even front, front line guys. They may be more twos or threes. Are you willing to go balls to the wall and get the best of the best in free agency when it comes to starting pitching? If the game plan and maybe, and, and I, if my guess, Pete, And I don't think this is the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is they don't aggressively try to buy pitching at all. And they try to piecemeal a rotation that features Senga, Quintana, Peterson, McGill, and like a smaller addition like Kyle Gibson. 
Like that's the worst case scenario because I don't know how you compete if that happens other than getting really, really lucky. Really, that's what it comes down. Getting really, really lucky with some of those arms and your offense just being amazing. Far better than we expect. The middle option is they're willing to spend, but it's going to be short-term deals. So what does that look like? I think that looks like Jack Flaherty, who's not coming off the greatest year, just acquired by the Orioles. I think that looks like, I'm going to duck when I say this, Luis Severino, who's coming off a terrible season for the Yankees. But on a one-year deal, yeah, that's what you're looking at. I think Kyle Hendricks on a short-term deal, assuming the Cubs don't exercise their team option. Alex Wood on a short-term deal. That's what you're looking at. Because if you're Jordan Montgomery and you can get a five-year deal or a four-year deal, you're taking it. If you're Sonny Gray and you can get a four- or five-year deal, you're taking it. So if you're going to rely on short-term big-money deals that work for Verlander and work for Scherzer, those are the names you're going to have to go get. You could also trade for a starting pitcher. But that means dipping into the system you just rebuilt to trade for starters. Is it a guy with only one year of control, or is it going to be a guy for multi-year control? I gave an example on the air. I'll give it again. And I have no reason to believe he's going to be traded other than the track record of the franchise. Would the Tampa Bay Rays cash out on Shane McClanahan? Would they say, you know what? The guy's been unbelievable, and he has, for the last three years. This is the time to trade him. I don't know. And by the way, and if the answer is yes, are you going to be willing to give up what it's going to take, which is top, top, top line prospects? Probably not. Because we'll all be afraid that the Rays know what they're doing when they trade a guy away. Would the Marlins, and I think it'd be stupid, but would the Marlins coming off a mediocre year trade Sandy Alcantara? I'm just saying that these are the kinds of names that maybe could be available, but to acquire those guys, you're not taking all those prospects that you just paid a ton for and sending them over to another team. And so this is what's so challenging. I don't have the answers. None of us have the answers. And I don't think anything Billy Epler or Steve Cohen says is going to mean anything until they do it during the offseason. Cohen has earned our trust in terms of spending, but what kind of spending are we talking about? Top, top line starting pitching short-term big money deals, or, eh, we've spent enough. Let's just try to throw a rotation together. So just from track record of Billy Epler, what he's what you saw in, in Anaheim, L.A., he kind of goes for those, like, one, two-year deals of, like, those project guys. Like, they, they loved Andrew Heaney for a while. I know he was, he was already in the system, but, like, they did bring in Syndergaard for, for like, a year. He had, like, I think Dylan Bundy was there for a year. Like, they would just go through all these guys that were kind of like, they were supposed to be good, but kind of really weren't, and then they'd give them, like, a year. And I think that that's, like, what you're going to be looking at. Like, you kind of nailed it with uh, the Gibson, but the Severino. Like, I hate that. He is dog crap right now. But that's somebody that I can see Epple saying, you know what? Maybe it was just a bad year. We'll give him one year, see if it works out. I have no problem with deals like that because the reward can be so incredibly high, but you do need to have some certainty in your rotation. And right now, the certainty, if you want to call it that, is Kodai Senga in his second full year in the major leagues and Jose Quintana in a contract year. Adding Luis Severino or a guy of that nature is fine, but you want to go into the year with some confidence, with some certainties. Uh, That's why when Billy Epler said on Sunday, 
we're going to go into 2024 with less expectations. That's fine. It's impossible for the Mets to go into 2024 with higher expectations than 2023. They won 101 games. They had Verlander and Scherzer. I get that next year may not come with the same expectations, and that's okay. But I want to go into next year, and I think most Mets fans do, with a thought of, yeah, they can make the playoffs. Yeah, this could be a fun season. They don't have to be the favorites, but you want them to be good. And we are all kids and students of pitching. And why I say that is because we're Met fans, and that's been our identity. I know that it wasn't necessarily in 2006. Maybe it wasn't as much in 06, but 2015 was, the 80s were, the 60s were, even 2000. Like, they had a lot of offense, but what were we so excited about going into the year? Mike Hampton and Al Leiter as a lethal one-two. And it's tough to have a rotation that's going to have so many questions. And that's what you're looking at. I just want to rewind something really quick because you brought up Hampton and Leiter. And Leiter was a little bit older when he was with the Mets and stuff like that. I was really thinking about this, and and you would be the best person to ask. Walking into the season, the Mets went with two aces that were 39 and going to 40 years old, right? When was there a time where a, a, a pitching staff was led by two guys of almost 40 years old and took it deep in the playoffs and won a World Series. I can't remember. Well, you got to look up the ages, but Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling were not exactly young in 2001, but they weren't they were that old. 37 and 34. Okay, I so it up that, that, which is my point. It's not that old, but they weren't young. Like 37 and 34 is not, it's not young, but no, it's not this, to, to your point. It's not. Uh, it didn't work. Look, they they went in last year with Scherzer and DeGrom, and it sort of worked but didn't. Like, Max was really good when he pitched, but he missed a lot of time. DeGrom barely pitched. And then, yeah, we can judge how they did in big spots. DeGrom was okay. Scherzer was terrible. It didn't work. And clearly, whatever the rotation is next year, whoever the top two or top three starters in the rotation are, and I assume Senga's one of those guys, it's going to be considerably younger. They're going to be a much younger rotation. Uh, let's get to a lot of your emails because as this day was going on, this very eventful day, we received a lot of them. So it's always fun to read your therapy session. It's therapy for all of us. Of course, you can email us to RicoB at gmail.com. I'm not sitting here trying to promote the show I do, but there was an instant reaction. It was just live on the air. If you want to hear that, Evan and Tiki, because the timing worked out that way. Like sometimes you just can't predict it. Uh, Ron Shea writes, perfect name. Verlander instant reaction. And he sent this one at 325. So this was, I'd say, about a half hour after the trade went down. Everyone is upset and rightfully so that this season and most likely next is over. But here's the silver lining I see. We as Met fans are all outraged right now because we got rid of our two mercenaries. This season was a colossal failure. But Steve Cohen did the right thing by moving on and not holding on to the mercenaries. These players that we keep joking about that might help us in 2026 could be the next best thing in baseball. They also could be colossal busts. But holding on to Max and Verlander would have gotten us nothing. In the long term, this is the best move the Mets could have made. I'm 31 years old, and I've never seen a World Series. What's 10 more years? <laughs> Steve Cohen is a businessman, and he's playing the long-term game. It sucks for us right now. Steve Cohen is playing the long game. Ron's right on a lot of levels. This sucks. Doesn't mean I'm happy about it. 
But I don't think there's any doubt that while the Mets would have had a better chance to win in 2024, and maybe it would have worked with these guys being a year older, probably not. They have given themselves at least a better chance for the years beyond that. Emmanuel writes, punting for 2024. I feel sick to my stomach, not because I don't think on some level what they're doing is smart. It's because, as you yourself have said, replacing the amount of pitching in one offseason is nearly impossible. Our bullpen is still trash, which I personally think is the biggest reason we suck this year. Selling at this level just feels more and more like a full rebuild. But hey, maybe in three to five years, that'll be awesome. But right now, it's it, right now, it still might not be, and we will be that much older, and some might not even be around to see it, as morbid as that is. That is pretty morbid, but true. My older son is turning six in a few days, and I know yours is around the same age. I just had a newborn boy back in July. Congrats. I just hope that they someday see this team do something because I'm getting sick and tired of waiting. I also find it interesting that they are now saying Verlander was told we probably won't be competing until 2025, so I don't think it's exactly a foregone conclusion that Steve is going to spend like a drunken sailor again this offseason. I think the only thing that would make me feel better and lift the morale is the team giving Pete Alonso a long-term extension. I keep hearing whisperings of him being traded, which I think is absurd. He's a homegrown talent that is beloved by fans, who's a top three power hitter in the game right now. Who are you replacing him with? Our offense is as inept as it is. It's a joke to think of a team without Alonzo. I think seeing him go might be a breaking point for me as a 30-year, for me, after 30 insufferable years. The funniest thing is that as much as we sucked last year, it was probably one of the best years we've had. So even when we're good, we suck. You can't make this stuff up. So let's address the Alonzo thing. The Alonzo thing has come from a few places. Number one, it came from the Athletic on Tuesday morning that the Mets were open to trading guys who are not signed beyond 2024. Well, just for the record, just so you know who's not signed beyond 2024, here are the guys who become free agents after next season. Jose Quintana, Omar Narvaez, Adam Adovino, Brooks Raley, Trevor Gott, Pete Alonzo, and Drew Smith. Obviously, the guy with value, Quintana, to a degree, is Pete Alonzo. I know that there's a price for everybody, and there's always a trade that you would say yes to if offered something immense. I do not see a realistic trade that makes any sense for the Mets in trading Pete Alonso. And I'm taking the emotion out for a second. Besides being a homegrown guy, besides being a guy who will own every record in Mets history, besides that, which is important, I don't know how you think that makes you better. Pete Alonso, I don't care what anybody says. We watch every inning of this team. Pete Alonso is getting better defensively every year. This idea that he's not a good defensive first baseman, I don't know if that's updated. Like, I mean, he's not perfect. So if you want to find the mistakes he makes and say, see, he sucks, that's not accurate. Like, even in this game on Tuesday night, he made an incredible pick to end the ninth inning on a bad throw by Lindor. So we can ignore it and make believe it didn't happen, but Pete is fine defensively. Fine is the word. I didn't say he's a gold glover. He's fine defensively. See, most people are probably going to look at this game and say, look, he took a ball off the face. And by the way, 
Yes, he did. And yes, that ball should have been caught. It wasn't the easiest play. I'm not saying he's perfect, but he's better than his reputation. He is, and he works his ass off and keeps getting better. So put the defense to the side. I would argue he's fine defensively. I mean, he's great. He's fine. Now you have a guy who plays every effing day. Even when he got hurt on the Charlie Morton hit batsman, he came back early. So he plays every day, and he is, in my opinion, the most reliable slugger in baseball today. And that includes Aaron Judge, and that includes Shohei Otani. I I said reliable. Reliable in that he'll play 150 games, and he's probably going to hit 40 home runs. And he's going to do it year after year after year. Is he having the greatest year ever? No, and that's why he's great. Because of the fact that we could sit here and say, hey, Pete's not having a great year, yet he's hit 31 home runs and has 77 RBIs uh, in August. So I'm taking the emotion out. I'm taking the homegrown out. I'm taking the he's going to own every record out. How you wouldn't want to keep that long term is crazy to me. It doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to try to not get pissed about it because listening on offers doesn't mean you're looking to trade them. And the Mets have gone through such an awful season that maybe the attitude was, we're going to listen on everything. Everything known to man we're going to listen on doesn't mean we're going to do it. With that said, I agree with that last email. I'd sign him today. Because his price tag is going to go up. You go to free agency, it goes up. He goes he goes out and it's 60 home runs in 2024. It goes up. I'm not mad about it yet because I think it's too stupid to be true. How about that? That's good logic, right? And, and, and let me make this very, very clear because I'm not angry yet, so you haven't seen it. Letting Pete Alonzo go is in a different stratosphere than letting Jacob DeGrom go. And I was pissed about DeGrom. Different stratosphere because I get it with DeGrom, and I lost the argument, but I got it. I didn't agree with you, but I got it. I don't get this one. I don't see the other side. I think the other side is stupid. I don't really like to say that, but that's how far. dumb. Again, if there's a trade out there, I'd love to hear it. But even if you name the team, you're giving me their top four prospects. Like, I still wouldn't make the trade. I still would think it's stupid. I can't hear you, yeah. Pete. I apologize. Go ahead. That's my that's my bad. Yeah, yeah. Rusty with the mic. All right. They're <laughs> not gonna make this trade, but I would do this trade. I would think about and comprehend doing this trade. If the Arizona Diamondbacks said we will give you Zach Gallen and Corbin Carroll for Pete Alonzo. Yeah, okay. Yes. But that's not going to happen. They're exactly. not going to do that. Exactly. Yes. That's why yeah. I, I always want to be careful with this. Yes, there's a trade I'd make for with Pete Alonzo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Of course. The old joke before Trout became injury prone is, would you trade him for Trout? Yes. Yeah. You got me. Okay. So, but but that's not out there. That's not real. Especially with only having one year of control before he gets to free agency. Those aren't real trades. So, no, yeah, 
anybody can come up with a trade that says, see, you trade Alonzo. This isn't fantasy baseball, though. This is real life. Keith Campbell writes, it's easy to indulge in feelings of disappointment with respect to the 2023 campaign or worry about the viability of the 2014. But the repurpose in of money and major assets as bait to acquire top prospects proves once again how awesome Steve Cohen is. Not only does he pour resources into the team in unprecedented fashion, but he learns quickly and never stays married to a failed strategy. He won't throw bad money after good or pretend the team is anything but an aging, mediocre, ultra-expensive non-contender. He also understands that a loaded farm system is 10 times more important than anything else. Even perennial contenders who spend big money like the Dodgers understand this. The goal isn't one lucky run with bloated paper in the thin 88-game winner. The goal is sustainable juggernaut. Making the playoffs every year, winning 100-plus in four or five years, producing tons of elite MLB talent, plus supplementary free agents, plus prospects to trade while still having a sack system. That's the goal. These moves bring us much closer. Listen, yes. I, I What I am saying is you can have both feelings. Everything Keith says, right. I admit These moves are smart long-term. These moves prove that Steve Cohen is willing to spend on anything, even if it's a prospect that very few of us have heard of prior to the Mets trading for them. You're right. But I do think it's okay to also have the emotion of disappointment that competing next year is going to be very, very difficult. And what they do during the offseason it's a major question. I, I mean, the one positive is we're going to have some very interesting off-season Ricos. I'll tell you that. <laughs> we're going to have a lot of them. We're going to have a lot of uh, Tim LeCastro might be the fourth outfielder. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> John writes, after the deadline, I'm happy with the prospects the Mets got back in a lot of these trades. The thing I take issue with is why aren't they giving any of the prospects a chance to show us what they got? Like, how are guys like Rafael Ortega and Daniel Vogelback taking roster spots over guys like Ronnie Mauricio? Is this a Mets or an organizational thing? Is it a Buck Showalter thing? It reminds me of his last year in Baltimore when they were starting guys like Pedro Alvarez, Colby Rasmus, and Craig Gentry. Appreciate the show. I'll continue to watch every game regardless of all of this. Yeah, that is the next step. You can't rush players. So I get that Acuna may not be ready. I get that. Uh, I get that you're not going to take guys who are years away and just throw them in the major leagues because we all, quote, want to see what they got. Drew Gilbert is not walking through that door. But the guy we look at, I'll give you two guys. The two guys I would say, you know what, let me take a look, is Ronnie Mauricio and even, um, oh, my God, uh, Mike Vassell. Mike Vassell's the other guy. He hasn't been great at AAA. He's made a couple of starts. They're like, why not? Why not give him a couple of major league starts? I I don't necessarily think it hurts you. I don't think it hurts you. David Ramos, right. And especially especially now, too, because the season is over. There's no pressure. It's not like you have to come up and save the season. Season is done. you got two months. Have some fun. Yep. Uh, Ethan Chow goes the other way. I'm so finished with this team. Billy and Epler and Steve Cohen said they are rebuilding, not retooling. 
What a joke of an organization this team is. Billy and Epler will keep his job and they will continue to get Darren Ruff type players. Billy and Epler is such a bad GM <laughs> that last year they had a chance to go deep into the playoffs, but he chose not to go for it. Billy and Epler is the worst GM, and I have to say he's even worse than Billy King and John Idzik. <laughs> this guy's <laughs> Steve Cohen is a fraud. He said he wants to win a championship in three to five years. Looks like that's not happening because this is year three, and he said they're not looking to compete in 24 to 26. The prospects they got will never be good. Look at Tom Smith and Ahmed Rosario. I think this guy's pulling our chain. <laughs> I think it's. I think he's channeling Frank the Tank. Like we could be negative, but I mean, it can't go all the way with it. Can, oh, we? can, I, can, I, can I just stop something real quick here? And now, listen, you tell me how wrong I am to think this way. But is there any possibility that Steve Cohen and Billy Epler are smarter than we think? And they said, "Listen, there's no other way. This season's done. There is no other way to maximize our." mistakes with Scherzer and Verlander they need to be off this team so we have to convince them to take to 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 unblock the trade to say I'll get rid of my my um I'll get rid of my 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 no trade request and we'll, we'll, I'll go to any team you you send me to and next year when David Stern comes in and he says you know what I don't like your plan I'm gonna I have a better plan and all of a sudden Oh, look, they're spending money. They're yeah. spending it. Is well, there any possibility? I think that if they were committed to moving Verlander and Scherzer, you got to tell them whatever it takes to get them to say yes to a trade. So I do understand that. Here's where I think the strategy could change, because I do think we all think David Stearns is going to run this team. It is not easy to buy pitching, and the Mets have acknowledged that, and we all know that. It's not easy to buy pitching. But right now, that's the Mets' only plan for the next three years. You know, unless you think you're hitting on all the young pitching prospects that you have that we talked about are not regarded as future aces. Sure, you can hit on all of them, but it's going to take a while. You're going to have to buy pitching. Like, you're going to have to buy pitching, whether it's this offseason or next offseason. So do you look at some of the guys that are available this year, specifically Julio Urias because of his age, and then you look at the guys available the following year, and I'll tell you the guys, Shane Bieber, Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, Tyler Glasnow, Zach Wheeler, Max Freed. Do you say, you know what? We got to get a little bit of now and a little bit of later. Like we're going to have to buy pitching. So if we have to buy pitching eventually, Maybe we do look at Julio Urias when we rank all the guys in 24 and 25 and say, hey, that's the best long-term guy. He's the youngest. He's a lefty. He's pitched on the national stage with the Dodgers. That's my guy. That's my number one target. And David Stearns could identify him as that. And so he's young enough. It's not Verlander or Scherzer. Why would you feel like you have to wait? Like you may as well sign that guy right now. So that would be my hope that you're looking at the free agent class of 24 and 25 and you're looking at all the pitchers that are available and we could all do it together. It could be a homework assignment and we could rank the guys we want. And if we ranked those guys based on track record and age, and again, Otani, you got to put to the side, he's different. If I'm taking all the free agents of 25 and 24 based on age and performance, Julio Urias is probably number one. He just is. Again, not having a great year this year. At a 2-1-6 ERA last year. He's pretty good. So I could see Stern saying, 
it makes sense to buy him now. Like, why would we wait? You know, it's going to take a seven-year contract. We think he's going to be good for the next five years. Hey, that's great. That's in our window of winning. Let's go buy him now. I think that could be something they do during the offseason. And maybe it's just wishful thinking, but they do need to add pitching. They're going to need to be aggressive in the free agent market as much as they may not love it, as risky as it may be. John Nieves writes, he's been a listener since day one. I, feel, I got to read this one. He's been a listener since day one, and he's always thought about emailing, but he was really just too lazy to ever do it. And today is the day. So let's get to John Nieves. I was pretty furious when I read Max's comments to The Athletic. It's hard to put into words how I felt. I mean, why should a team with a core of talented players like Nimmo, Lindor, Alonzo, Sanget, and Alvarez not strive to compete every single year? Why are we punting two whole years? As you've mentioned before, with the right reinforcements, we could have made a solid run next year. But instead, we're being told to not even bother watching. I can't help but remember all the articles I've read recently about how the Mets have added numerous analytics staff. The Wilpons were often seen as too old school and poor to invest in analytics. And now, but now we have swung too far in the other direction. Did the analytic inmates run the asylum? I'm not a grumpy old man. I don't mind analytics as a tool, but the issue with analytics is not the amount of information it provides, but rather how it turns everything into a zero sum equation. Just like the all or nothing approach to hitting, the Mets are conveying that their one and only goal is winning the World Series. Sounds great when you say it out loud, but what does that really mean? There's a difference between making a World Series your ultimate goal and making it your only goal. Is all or nothing a good thing? There's no room for 85 wins in this world. Does it bother to build around a team that's not a sure thing? Will the Mets only try when the numbers say they have an 85% chance of the playoffs or higher? Would the 2015 Mets have bothered to trade for Cespedes with this new regime? What we've always yearned for is sustained success that gives us multiple opportunities at a title. Some years might not go our way, but that doesn't mean we need to completely dismantle things after one setback. What are we truly telling our fans and players when we decide to give up on entire seasons? It's I get where he's coming from. And I appreciate, and we do appreciate the email. I think the difference in this equation is not that analytics told them to sell. I think the age told them to sell. Let's not forget that the men that they traded are old. And as much as I think Verlander still had something left, and Scherzer still could have been a valuable middle of the rotation arm next year, granted overpriced, they traded old guys. David Robertson, who I think they're going to re-sign next year, I can see that. I can see them bringing him back, is older. Verlander's 40. So if this turns into trading Alonzo and trading Nimmo, I'd agree with you. But as of right now, this was maximizing your return on older guys. I wouldn't be concerned that the Mets' strategy is, hey, we're not good enough to win a World Series. Let's just blow it up every time we can. I think it was a certain scenario that led to this. Fred Solomon writes, what does it say about Epler's tenure that his teardown moves were better than actually assembling the team? That is a tremendous email by Fred and very accurate. It it is because he inherited a lot of his team. He did. So you got to look at, oh, well, what did he do? So what he did was he signed Max Scherzer, Starling Marte, Mark Canna, David Robertson. Uh, There's some decent moves in there. 
But these are the moves that are getting great acclaim. His his teardown was better than the additions. It's a great point by Fred. <laughs> you can't argue that one. Nick Stasiak writes, I'm sorry, but it is unacceptable for this team to go into a potential multi-year rebuild under Steve Cohen, especially three years into his tenure. I get it that they haven't been good this year, but it feels like a drastic overreaction to four mediocre months. He's right if they break the core apart. I have not seen enough evidence to say, hey, this core is rotten, like the old David Wright, Jose Reyes days, uh, the old debate me and Francesca used to have. The core is rotten. you got to break it up, which he probably turned out to be right about. I agree. I don't think this team has shown us enough of that. They've had guys having down years, like Jeff McNeil's having a down year. But Brandon Nimmo, Francisco Lindor, and Pete Alonso, I want on this team. Like, they're good baseball players. I have no evidence that they're bad guys. I don't believe that this locker room is this problem that's been preached over the last few days. As I've said, it, it sounds like an excuse to explain in at play. That's what it sounds like. Now, if someone's in the locker room and says different, okay. But what is the problem if there is something in the room? I think if they break the core apart even deeper, I would agree with Nick and say, wow, we're going crazy over four months. I think this was just changing the starting pitching plan because let's keep that in mind. Look at the lineup on Tuesday night. Nimmo was initially in until he got scratched. So let's use that lineup. Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo, Beatty, Alvarez, DJ Stewart, Mark Vientos, and Ortega. Other than the Canafam departures, nothing changed. The core lineup is the same. And all we agree on is, hey, call up Mauricio. Let him be a part of it now. But Canafam would never, oh my God. They were smart to trade those guys. This was about changing the rotation. A rotation that has been altered a lot over the last three years. Even prior to Cohen's entrance into the fray. Think back to 2019. What was the Met rotation in 2019? It was Jacob DeGrom and Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard and Marcus Stroman. In 2020, weird year, they brought in Rick Porcello and Michael Waka. In 2022, they had Chris Bassett and they had Taiwan Walker. And then this year, they made all those changes again. But these changes have been going on for a while. Since the decision by the Wilpons to let Zach Wheeler go, which was a horrific one, the rotation every year looks different. And when you really think about it, that's all that's happening here. They've altered the rotation. And that's why the biggest question going into the offseason, and the biggest question I'd ask, is not should they trade Pete Alonso? That's stupid. It's how do you rebuild the rotation? Just like last year, they let DeGrom and Walker and Bassett go, and they replaced those guys with Senga, Verlander, and Quintana. Well, now Scherzer's gone, Verlander's gone, Carrasco's going to be gone. How do you replace them? Well, it's just one simple thing is next year, you got to remember, Kana's off the books, Fam's off the books. Escobar's off the books. We are paying a little bit of Scherzer and, and Verlander, so that is true. But but it's not going to be a $350 million payroll like it was this year. It's still going to be less 
So there's going to be money available that you can't. I mean, I don't know. Do you think that? Do you think that Cohen is still going to go and say, if it takes three fifty, um, I'll I'll still match that, or are we going to say I need to get it? I need to get it below a luxury tax. I, I don't think he's going to be flirting with I got to get below the luxury tax. I just wonder how much they're going to be willing in, willing to invest in the rotation, and that's. That's the question that's going to determine the meta offseason, and that's the question that's going to determine what our expectations are for 2024. That's it. Like, How are they going to build a rotation around Senga and Quintana? How do they do that? And how much money are they willing to spend on that? So what's been the last few days? The last few days, to me, I think the, the reasonable response is it's a very big mix of emotions. There's the disappointment of this failure. Because it is a failure. And the New York Mets of 2023 will go down as one of the biggest failures in the history of the franchise. And I guess people will argue in the history of the sport. So the closure of that is disappointing. And it's okay to be disappointed about that. I said this story very briefly on the air. I'll bring up another sport. It's football. When the Jets traded Sam Darnold, I was sad. And Craig couldn't understand. He's like, this is great. Sam Darnold's gone. We got to pick. And I said, yeah, I know we had to trade Sam Darnold. I know we were going to trade Sam Darnold. I know the return for Sam Darnold was great, but it was disappointing that it failed because I really thought Sam was the answer. And the closure on that was some sadness of, ah, man, this sucks. Like I knew it was going to happen, but this sucks. And I think over the last few days, that's the Mets. The Mets are a failure. They're not going to go to the postseason. They're not even going to be in a pennant race. And if I would have said that five months ago, you would have thought I was Frank the Tank. So that is okay to have the emotion of just sheer disappointment. Then I have the emotion of, oh my God, I'm thinking about 2024. How are they going to build a rotation? But then I do have the emotion of, wow, they have a freaking owner that just wrote massive checks to get prospects, which is what he did, which is what he did. He built up the farm system by giving Billy Epler the weapon of paying off most of Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer's contract. And that's cool. I don't think there's any person, even if you hated what they did in terms of, I would have kept both guys. I would have tried to have won this year and next year. Even if you think that, which I certainly was, that was my opinion over the last week, you still have to look at what they did and said, whoa, the owner just wrote massive checks to rebuild the farm system. And that's why it's a mix of emotions. We will have another podcast after this series is over and actually try to talk about the final two games of this series with Kansas City. And I'll make you this prediction. We will complain about Ronnie Mauricio not being up here because I have a feeling that's going to last for a while. Where's Ronnie? Where's Ronnie? Where's Ronnie? So we'll have a pod coming up after the series with the Royals ends on Thursday. And then, look, the plan is still there. Sunday night, after the Met Orioles series is complete, the first ever Drunk Rico. That is scheduled to go down. Uh, my wife already knows about it. She's got the uh, frozen alcoholic drinks ready to go. Sunday is going to be a fun day. And for the first time ever, a drunk Rico. I'm on vacation, so don't worry. Like, it, should uh, we get some special fun. guests to pop? Should we get some special guests to pop in here and there to really add to the fun? Do they have to be drunk? Is the question. Oh, a hundred percent. You have to be drunk, otherwise you can't join. Those are the rules for the uh, first ever drunk Rico. 
It's perfect timing too. I mean, considering where this season is going, it all makes uh, perfect sense. Really quickly, because I just, I just want to. I, I need to know this for myself. I love my my owner, Steve Cohen, is by far like the best thing that happened to the Mets. But do you think he understands how massive of a failure this was, and how the fan base has always felt this way? It's like up oh, here. It's 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 the Mets. Of course, what happened to Mets? Does he understand that? You think? I think he does because he's a fan and he's been around and he has seen the Wilpons from not afar but relatively close. This is just going to add to the stigma that we all face. That stigma of even when things are going well, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop because the 2022 Mets now goes down in history as what? You know, how do we view? And obviously, it depends on what happens next year, the year after that, but. 101 wins, a fart in the wind. When you think about what happened around it, think about what happened around it. Think about 2017, under 500 massive failure. 2018, under 500 massive failure. 2019, above 500, but they blew every game they could to miss the playoffs. 2020, short season, massive failure. 2021, first place for a big bulk of the season, and then. Massive failure. 2022, 101 wins. 2023, massive failure. It it makes 2022 feel like it wasn't real. Did that actually happen? 101 wins? And I'll leave you with this because this was in the email that if the New York Mets, let me find it because I want to give the guy credit. He wrote this whole thing down about the history. Steve Johnson. The New York Mets are likely to finish below 500. There have been 114 MLB teams that have won over 100 games in a season. If the Mets finish below 500, they will become just the fifth team to follow up a 100-win season with a sub-500 year. The 1918 White Sox, which I think that was the World War I team, the 1931 Cardinals, the 1971 Reds, and the 1986 St. Louis Cardinals. And he does point out that the 18 White Sox were affected by World War I. But what's interesting is that the 71 Reds and the 86 Cardinals is that they went to the World Series the following year. That is interesting. Anyhow, good good fact by Steve. Bottom line is the Mets are about to make some embarrassing history. I think that's what we're, we're headed towards. Uh, You could email the pod if we didn't get to your emails. I apologize. There were obviously a ton. The Rico B at gmail.com. The Rico B at gmail.com. I'll be on the air for a few more days. Evan and Tiki on Wednesday and Thursday, and then I'm off for a while. I'm not off from the Rico, though. That's my loyalty to you guys. I'm taking vacation from the radio station, but when I go on vacation, I'm bringing my laptop and a microphone so that we never miss a Rico. So we appreciate you listening through these troubled times, but we will get you through these troubled times as best as we can. Thanks for listening and downloading Rico Blue. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 